Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher do not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 91 of History of the Marine Corps, the Somme-Yell Offensive. This is the first U.S.-led offensive in World War I. Although the U.S. Army primarily fought this battle, the Marines played a considerable role in its outcome. We'll discuss some of the events leading up to the fight, look at how the Marines spent some of their quiet time, and get into the planned strategy outlined by Pershing and Lejeune. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The success of Allied forces on the Western Front had a big impact on the Germans in 1918. British and French forces hit the Germans hard, and combined with the United States' success at Bella Wood and Soissons, forced the German army to flee the Marne salient and head towards their border. In July, John Lejeune reported for duty as the 4th Brigade commander, making him the second Marine to lead the Army Brigade during World War I. In order for Lejeune to properly take charge, he needed to be promoted to Major General. At the time, the Marine Corps was only authorized to have two major generals, one of which was already in use by Commandant Barnett. The second slot was given to Lejeune. Although Brigadier General Charles Doyen was the first Marine to command an army brigade in World War I, Lejeune was the first Marine to lead the army during a major battle. He had some battle-hardened Marines under his command but many units had taken significant casualties in the clashes leading up to the battle. Included in those casualties were a few of the battalion commanders. Major Frederick Barker would relieve 1-6 commander Major John Johnny the Hard Hughes due to his multiple casualties, including side effects from mustard gas at Bella Wood and broken bones caused by artillery shell fragments at Soissons. Lieutenant Colonel Holcomb was also relieved from 2-6 by Major Ernest Williams. Major Williams' character was either celebrated or criticized, depending on who you ask. On one hand, Williams won the Medal of Honor in the Dominican Republic. He rushed the gates of a fortress with only 12 men available. Eight of his Marines were wounded during this initial charge. The remaining four Marines rushed towards the gate of the fort and Williams threw himself at the door when the Dominicans were closing it, and he managed to force it open. Williams and the remaining four Marines took out the guards, gained control of the fort, 
and freed the hundred prisoners that were there. Future Commandant Clifton Cates, who has an impressive battle history himself, in his own words called Williams a fine major. In letters home, he said, quote, He had all the courage in the world, but I wouldn't say he was the brainiest or friendliest man in the world. Unquote. On the other hand, Corporal Don Paradis had a completely different view of him. Paradis served as the battalion runner, and his primary role was to communicate critical information between commands. He spoke to Williams frequently, and he said, quote, He was an alcoholic, drinking from one half to two quarts of whiskey per day. He had some Marine non-coms. Non-coms is just short for non-commissioned officers. He had some Marine non-coms who served with him before the war, whose duties were to keep him supplied with cognac liquor. I know he had no love for me, and I surely had none for him, unquote. But regardless of his character, Williams was a warrior, and the experience was needed to face off against the Germans at San Miel. This part of the Western Front had existed since the beginning of the war. The Germans knew an attack was coming, and that Allied forces were making extensive preparations to launch a massive attack against their position. German leadership argued about what to do with this information. They were split between two options, staying where they are and defending their position, or withdrawing from this part of the Hindenburg Line and creating a new front further back. Some historians believe that the Germans began withdrawing before the salient was even attacked. But Marine historian Claude Metcalf argued otherwise and claimed that German records don't show that any troops were withdrawn during that time. Before the Marines faced off with Germans at San Miel, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was serving as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, boarded the USS Dyer and headed towards France. With him was his Marine orderly, Sergeant W. Stratton. When they arrived in Europe, he was picked up in a Rolls-Royce and taken to the Ritz. Here he was briefed about the war, and he learned about the heroic action of the Marines at Soissons. When he wrote home, he discussed the news that he received, claiming the Marines as his own. Quote, One of my Marine regiments has lost a hundred and another eight hundred men. Unquote. He met with Prime Minister David Lloyd George and the French Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour during his visit. Balfour relayed to Roosevelt that, quote, everyone knew that it was the U.S. Marines who had stopped the Germans at Chateau Thierry, unquote. Roosevelt demanded to visit Bellawood after hearing that comment from the foreign secretary, and he humbly walked through the battlefield. The day after his visit, he traveled to the 5th Marines location. When he arrived, he found that many Marines were wearing the same olive drab uniforms as the army, and it was hard to tell the difference between the Marines and soldiers. This lack of distinction bothered him, and one of his biggest complaints was that his Marines couldn't be recognized from soldiers. Lejeune recommended that Leathernecks wear the Marine Corps emblem on their collars in response. Roosevelt thought this was a great idea, and he authorized the uniform change. He left the next day and headed to Verdun and the Marines proudly donned their Eagle Globe and Anchor on their uniforms before heading to the front lines. U.S. forces were assigned to the French 8th Army, and the French 32nd Corps handled the tactical control, 
On August 4th, General Gerald from the French 8th met with French Corps and Marine Corps leaders at the 2nd Division headquarters. The French left with a good impression, and Major General Pasaga, commander of the 32nd Corps, described Lejeune as, quote, a noble old Roman, unquote. After the meeting, military commanders sent the Marines to relieve the French 64th Division and monitor a seven and a half mile front south of San Miel. Running through this sector was the Moselle River, and the 5th Marine Division set up their position on the east bank, while the 6th Marines took the west. Between the two regiments was a large stone bridge. The Germans never destroyed the bridge when they controlled the sector, because they still anticipated using it. The 2nd Battalion in each regiment was in the front line trenches, and just like most other reliefs, it took place at night to limit visual exposure. The French also ordered their telephone operators to stop using English during the relief, and under no circumstances were they to use the word American. 2-5 relieved the French 340th Infantry on the 7th. Major Frederick Weiss was in command, and he made a house in the middle of town his battalion headquarters. When his Marines were in position the next day, he walked the lines to inspect the established defense. He discovered that the barbed wire was not up to his standards. Most of it was rusted or destroyed, so he sent some Marines to fix the gaps. 2-6 would receive additional support, and the Marines who were injured at Soissons but could still pick up a weapon were sent to their location. Lieutenant Graves Erskine was one of these Marines. He was sent to the Nance Hospital after an exploding enemy shell knocked him unconscious. Doctors syringed blood clots from his ears and restored his hearing. He resumed command of the 2nd Platoon in the 79th Company. Williams set up his battalion headquarters in an old chateau not too far from the front lines. It took Williams' Marines two days to march to their location. During the march, Williams rode on his horse and traveled so fast that many of his Marines couldn't keep up. Coupled with the summer temperature, Many of them fell out. French General Pasaga warned the Marines that Germany was notorious for raiding a section within a few days of a new division taking over. This was somewhat of a ritual for the new storm troops. After they graduated from training, they would attack as a final phase before becoming a stormtrooper. Pasaga offered 200 francs for every German prisoner taken. That was equivalent to about $35 in 1918 and about $641 today. That was a month's pay for many fresh U.S. troops. True to Pasaga's word, the German launched an attack at 0200 on the 9th. One of the patrols Weiss sent to fix the barbed wire reported that a large formation of German troops was heading in their direction. They were carrying Bangalore torpedoes, a large tube filled with explosives to blow up obstacles. Saving Private Ryan's opening scene shows combat engineers using Bangalore's to blow up barbed wire before they advanced on machine gun nests. A group of these Germans had one of their Bangalore's explode too soon, which killed or injured many of them, but a whole bunch were still coming towards the Marines. The explosion caught the attention of the U.S. troops, and soon the battlefield opened with the sound of machine gun and artillery fire. Both sides fired at each other for an hour, 
One Marine was killed and seven were wounded. The Germans managed to hit a warehouse filled with grenades and other explosives. The explosion demolished that building. After the short battle, Marines from 2-6 headed towards the German location and scouted the area. They brought two prisoners back with them. One of them ended up dying from his wounds. That there were about 125 Germans during the initial raid. Although the prisoner died, General Pasaga awarded the Marines 400 francs for capturing both Germans. He was thrilled to hear the news and promised awards for the Marines. The money that was awarded went into the company's mess fund. Paradis was standing watch on a wooden platform positioned in a tree overlooking the river. He saw the attack take place, and he watched as a battalion scout was caught between the fire from the two sides. The scout, along with Mr. Irving Davis, a YMCA secretary attached to the battalion, left that afternoon to pick up some honey. Davis used to help his dad with bees, and he had experience gathering it from hives. They waited until morning to come back, and they brought with them a cup of honey that was strained through a piece of window curtain to remove any dirt and debris. Paradis stated, quote, It went well with the potato pancakes, unquote. It's the little things, right? I'm sure after all they went through to get that honey, the taste was that much better. Lejeune officially took control of the sector seven hours after the Germans attacked. The Marines learned from this initial assault, and things were relatively quiet from then on. So much so that a quarter of the Marines in the rear were allowed liberty. While they enjoyed their rest and relaxation, the Marines on the front lines would teach the younger devil dogs how to live it up in the trenches. They would make trench donuts by frying their hardtack or leftover bread in bacon grease. The concoction would go in a mess tin and cooked over a candle. The raw sugar mentioned by Silverthorne in episode 89, The Battle of Sosan Part 1, was sprinkled on the trench donuts. The Marines would also throw hand grenades into the river and stun the fish, causing them to float to the surface. They would gather them up and cook them for dinner. They were living the life of luxury in this sector. Electricity even ran through some buildings. Marines spent their time swimming in the river, riding home, and even picking lice off each other. They made a game out of it. Marines noticed that lice would hang out along the seams, in the armpits, and around the neckband. They would make bets on who would pick off the most cooties. Burke, a Marine from Philadelphia, won most of those bets. Congressmen visited the sector. This alone should tell you how quiet it was. And Elsie Janis, an American actress, visited them and put on a show. She was known as the sweetheart of the American Expeditionary Force for her support of entertaining troops near the front lines in World War I. But all good things come to an end. And after 10 days of quiet time for the Marines, reality started to settle back in. Lejeune received a message from the 4th Corps stating that his Marines would be relieved by the 82nd Division. 2-5 was relieved by the 327th and they made their way northeast. Wise's responsibility of leading this battalion was over and Major Harold Parsons replaced him. When he was relieved, Weiss learned that he had been a full bird colonel for over a month and a half. 
he moved on to command the Army's 59th Infantry Regiment. A thousand fresh Marines were sent in to support the existing regiments. But this large force still wasn't enough to staff the front lines. They were short about 2,500 men, and the American Expeditionary Force headquarters compensated by giving Lejeune soldiers to help reinforce his ranks. Lejeune wasn't satisfied with this replacement, and he stated, quote, This would be disastrous to morale and efficiency. Unquote. He asked that all of the Marines currently serving with the service of supply be sent instead. This ask was honored, and Lejeune put it simply, Every variety of Marine came home. The influx of Marines from the service of supply was enough to fill the gaps. Lejeune stepped up the training, and every Marine was taught the intricacies of trench warfare, had open access to the firing range, and division-sized attack simulations were held to prepare the Marines for the upcoming battle. This part of the war is where the star and Indian head logo began to gain popularity, and each unit had a color-coded background of the image. Because of the popularity of this icon, U.S. troops began calling Lejeune the Old Indian. On August 26th, the two forces started positioning themselves on the Western Front for a new campaign. Reconnaissance aircraft flew overhead and scouted the battlefield as enormous convoys traveled to the front lines. There were 15 American divisions and four French divisions heading to battle. But unlike Soissons, the French didn't make too much effort to keep this attack secret. The extensive movements was picked up by the Germans, and General von Fox organized 12 divisions to defend their position. They also had two railway systems providing support to the front lines. On August 30th, Falk presented his plan to Pershing. The main attack would head towards Mezières, which was one of the main communication hubs for the Germans. They would hit this position in two attacks. The first would be by the French 2nd Army and reinforced by four to six American divisions. The second would attack a few days later, with the U.S. taking the right and the French 4th taking the left. Pershing liked his idea, but recommended against separating U.S. troops. He suggested the first attack be entirely U.S. forces. At first, Falk thought this was a bad idea, and pointed out that U.S. forces didn't have the artillery, aircraft, and supplies to support this attack. Pershing argued otherwise and he eventually convinced Falk to allow the Americans to attack. Pershing assigned the 1st and 4th Corps to launch the main attack, while the 5th Corps, led by the 26th Division, attacked the western side of the salient. This attack plan severed German troops from its position. A lot of thought went into this strategy, and the United States spared no cost or effort to ensure troops went in hard and fast. The Marines were given a mile-and-a-half sector through a wooden area similar to Bella Wood. They started heading to their location on September 1st. The Marines would be the center of the main attack. To their left was the 89th Division of the 4th Corps. U.S. forces had 1,030 officers and 26,000 enlisted prepared to advance towards the Germans. On the other side, the Germans had the 77th Reserve Division, commanded by General Adams, and the 57th Provisional Corps, 
commanded by General von Hartz. The 257th, 419th, and 232nd regiments supported their position. They also had support artillery. The 77th had 9 light artillery batteries and 8 heavy batteries. But their infantry units lacked the strength they needed to go up against the United States, and each battalion only had about 500 men. 45 light tanks and 18 medium tanks reinforced the Marines. Each of these tank classes had a purpose. The medium tank's missions was to breach the barbed wire, while the light tanks took out the machine gun nests. This strategy was developed at Soissons and worked very well. The 23rd and 9th Infantry Battalions would lead this attack, while the 5th and 6th Marines would follow close behind, protecting their flanks. Unlike Soissons, U.S. forces were well informed. Major Tony Waller, commander of the 6th Machine Gun Battalion, stated, quote, The intelligent maps of the Bosch lines were wonderful. We knew the location of every PC, dressing station, tank trap, dump, machine gun position, artillery position, etc. How he made his relief and by what routes. Therefore, we could estimate how he would retreat. Unquote. The plan called for the attacking battalions to advance on a two-company front, with a machine gun company and two other companies supporting them. The Germans were aware of the strength of the attack heading their way. A few days before the battle kicked off, General von Fuchs thought about launching an attack of his own as an attempt to break up American forces. But after a lot of debate, he convinced himself otherwise. Instead of a surprise attack, he requested permission to withdraw. The Imperial Headquarters approved his recommendation with the stipulation that the outpost line is held as long as possible. He moved his main line back towards his artillery and deepened his outpost. At 1 a.m. on September 12th, the attack started with artillery. U.S. forces were in position with the 3rd Brigade. The 9th Infantry was on the right, followed by the 5th Marines in support. The 6th Marines followed the 23rd Infantry on the left. The Germans were still in the process of deepening their outpost zones and moving their main line of resistance back. This attack caught them off guard and caused massive confusion. The heavy bombardment, coupled with the quick advance from the infantry units, quickly conquered the first objective, with very little resistance, and an hour ahead of schedule. The 6th Machine Gun Battalion provided constant fire for 45 minutes and each company spent about 15,000 rounds in the process, firing a rate of around 25 rounds per minute to avoid overheating the guns. U.S. troops used the extra time to reorganize and prepare for the second advance. It was time for the Marines to shine, and Lejeune ordered the 5th Marines to relieve the 9th Infantry and the 6th Marines to relieve the 23rd. The Marines sent patrols to recon the area and take a position of a section of the woods that blocked the brigade's front. 3-5 sent the 45th Company to this location, and the 47th to the west towards the Bois de la Montagne. These two companies held the woods until the next day, when they were reinforced with the remaining battalion. The 6th Marines faced considerably more resistance than the 5th. 
two six headed towards the wood farther to the west. They thought this area was free of German forces, but they were wrong. They first encountered about 40 Germans, who fled as soon as the Marines started firing at them. Gunnery Sergeant William Ulrich, who would later rise to the rank of Major, chased them down and convinced them to surrender. As they progressed, they encountered a lot more Germans. Both sides faced off for hours, but the Marines repulsed a German counterattack. U.S. forces continued to push German troops back, and their effort resulted in a decisive victory at San Miel. This victory was accomplished with few losses. Total losses were 195 killed, 1,041 wounded, 23 gassed, and 292 missing. The second division also took 118 guns and around 3,300 prisoners. I'm not sure if Pasaga paid the 200 francs for each of these prisoners, but for those of you that are interested, that would have resulted in about $2.1 million in today's money. That's a pretty large mess fund. This battle was largely a U.S. Army victory, but the Marines played a considerable role in cleaning out German forces from the front lines. The funny part is that most of them didn't even realize that this was an important battle. When the next Stars and Stripes edition was released, many Marines were shocked to read that they participated in such a great victory. The United States' contribution during this battle removed Germans from a salient they had held onto for four years and forced the Germans to retreat behind their Hindenburg line. After the battle, the Marines experienced somewhat of a peace. They held their position in the woods. It was cold and rainy, a miserable situation, but Private Hatcher stated, quote, We found our rolling kitchens and a hot breakfast awaiting. After breakfast, I laid down on the long grass in a small clearing to rest. Everything seemed quiet and restful there, unquote. On September 25th, Cates wrote home to his family and spoke about a Marine who had forgotten the password to enter his camp. The Marine sentry asked him to whistle the Marine hymn instead. He did, and was allowed to enter. But this peace would be short-lived, and the Marines would soon find themselves facing off against the Germans in a battle with about as many casualties as Bella would. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll follow the Marines to Mont Blanc. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Peak Mind, Find Our Focus, Own Your Intention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day, written by Amishi Jha. This book is far from the standard recommendation I offer on this podcast, but I found it to be very interesting. I guess you can categorize it as more of a self-help book, and you could get a good idea of the content from the title alone. Although this book isn't specifically about Marines, they are mentioned. Dr. Jaw conducted a study with Marines before they went on deployment, and they saw some benefit using her techniques. I've always been a big believer in training your brain. Mindfulness can sound a little foo-foo-y, but there is undoubtedly a benefit with training your mind, just like there is with training your body. My recommendation is more for the book than her guidance on mindfulness. The breakdown of the science was more interesting for me. Her techniques are essentially meditation, which has been proven helpful for years. I've started using her techniques for about two weeks now, 
Like most of you listening, I have a lot of things on my plate, and I thought this would be a good way to help focus my attention. To be transparent, I haven't noticed much of a change, but to be fair, this isn't something that happens overnight. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.